0: We're kicking off a new sermon series today that runs through Easter, and I want to begin by sharing a key finding from a study that I've been pondering for a little while now. Now, let me just say, I'm not a huge pollster. I believe numbers tell you something. They don't tell you everything. But this one has actually aligned with my own experience of people outside the church. And I wonder if it might resonate with yours as well if it is indeed representative of American society today, that has huge implications for us as a church on how we live and how we start this year. So the study is from the Barna Group, which has been tracking American Christianity for probably 40 years. David Kinnaman, the CEO of Barna and other researchers, wanted to explore, in the last year, how has the pandemic impacted people spiritually? So you know lots of fields have sought to explore the impact of pandemic, let's say, on physical health, mental health, on education, finances. But these folks were seeking to understand how has this impacted people's spiritually spiritual perspective. And their survey found 72% of Americans are very or moderately open. Could be either one. Uh, And they define spiritually open as answering yes to three three or four of these questions. If you were three, you were moderately open. If you were four, you were very open. So number one, I believe it is at least possible there's a spiritual dimension to life. Number two, I would describe myself, so this is their their self-reporting, as either exploring or open or curious. Could have been any one of those. Number three, I have a positive association with the term spirituality as opposed to negative. And number four, I believe there is a God or higher power. So think about this. 72% of adults surveyed, perceived themselves as moderately or very spiritually open, not resistant, not opposed to spiritual things. This was not unique to older generations, if that's what you're thinking. In fact, younger generations reported being open or more open to God than they were before the pandemic. 60% of millennial Gen Z agreed with the statement, I am more open to God than I was before the pandemic. Now, I wanna be clear that this study measured spiritual openness Not necessarily affinity towards Christianity or churches. In fact, this spiritual openness coincides with a steep decline, spiral downwards, of spiritual commitment and church attendance across the United States. Many people are cynical about Christians, but they are still spiritually seeking. There have been some grave breaches of trust for Americans with regard to Christianity in recent years. And frankly, such skepticism skepticism and suspicion of churches is often warranted. But that doesn't mean people aren't open to the idea that there may indeed be a higher power or that there may be more to this life than what we see or that there might be life after death or that the person of Jesus... Offered a really good way to live and continues to. Maybe you're here today and you would consider yourself one of those 72%. You're not entirely sure about this Christian faith thing, but you're open to spiritual things. I hope you continue to join us for our new series. We're starting today on a portion of the book of Luke in the New Testament called Incredible, the Gospel for All. Because I think you might find some answers to some of your questions here. And if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I think you'll find this this series provides encouragement as well as conviction around the story you have already come to believe is true. And it just may provide some help for you as you seek to love and listen and care for the spiritually open people in your own lives. Because as I hope we see throughout this series, the story of Jesus is compelling. It's not just a heartfelt story that would be nice if it were true. It's credible. Serious people of respectable intellect have come to believe in the truth of its claims, even though it does at times put forward claims that seem incredible or hard to believe. Indeed, throughout this story of Jesus, many incredible events occur, events that are remarkable and truly life-changing, and that is hopeful for us. And this credible, incredible story is a message for all people, not just some. And it's those three aspects of this sermon series that I want to touch on today to kick off this series, that it's credible, It is incredible, and it is a message for all, not just some. We're going to undoubtedly return to all three of those themes throughout the next 12 weeks, but I want to start with an overview of those themes because they permeate all of Luke's writing. So let's begin with the first theme, Credible. And I'm going to spend the majority of our time here because our passage today is an introduction to the book and it really supports this theme. And in future weeks, we'll hit harder the other two themes. As with any book, even ones you are reading today, we learn a lot from the introduction and who the author is. When I compile a list for my new year of what books I want to read, a big question for me is who is the author? Are they worth reading? Are they knowledgeable? Are they a good writer? So today we're going to look at the introduction of this book and see who the author is. And I'm hoping, as we do, you will come to have a high regard for this writer as I have. Let me say that we're looking at only a portion of the book of Luke in this series, chapters 4 to chapters 9. That's partly because we only have 12 weeks, and partly because of the length of the book. Luke is one is the longest book in the New Testament, and the second longest book, just 3% shorter, Uh, is Acts, written by the same author. So this is actually um, one volume, one book that's meant to be together, volume one, Luke, volume two, Acts, so we often refer to it as Luke-Acts, with a hyphen in between. Uh, And book one is about what Jesus began to do, uh, and book two is about what he continues to do through his followers, the early church. Now, some scholars say this break in volumes is not just thematical and theological, but it's practical because in the first century, a length of a scroll <laughs> was the length of one of these books. Uh, but either way, he couldn't fit it all on one scroll, so that's how he did it, uh, They are meant to be read together. And if you look at the introduction of these books, you will see they're written by the same person. I'm just going to show you briefly here. Uh, Luke 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account. I, too, decided to draw up an account, most excellent, Theophilus. Acts 1, in my former book, Theophilus, That's who we just referenced in Luke. I I wrote about all these things. Now I'm picking up that story of when the early church gets in on it and the baton is passed. So clearly the writer of uh, Luke is the writer of Acts. So let's look more closely at how the writer introduces his work. Uh, In this series, we're just looking at Luke 4 to 9, we'll come back to other sections of Luke later on, and of course, we'll come back to his Volume 2 Acts uh, at a future time. Listen to how the writer introduces his work from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is actually not that different from introductions to books we would read today. The author acknowledges his predecessors on books previously written on the subject. He says something about his research methodology, and he articulates his purpose. It's also very consistent with the literary convention at the time in Greco-Roman writing. So let me talk through a few of those. Many have undertaken to draw up an account An account is a narrative of all the events that occurred, not just a single event. It's a historical record of this epic event in history, of the things that have been fulfilled among us, meaning the story of Jesus from his birth through his ascension. When he says, Many have undertaken, he's mentioning the fact that prior to his writing, other records have existed. In fact, He's acknowledging his sources, which we know in academic circles is pretty important to do. Uh, I'm not gonna go into all of this right now, but I wanna invite you to stay for our second hour Sunday morning communities with Dr. Clark, who's here with us uh, even now this morning, so you can greet him afterwards with his wife, Sandy. Um, he will address more of this, but to fu- suffice it to say, the author writes, when he's writing his work, he's drawing on other sources that already existed at the time, namely the Gospel of Mark um, and another source, uh, which both Matthew and Luke drawn. But I will leave that for Dr. Clark to pick up more, just a little teaser for you. Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us, handed down was this passing on of information And it's an authoritative tradition, even outside Christianity. Disciples in the first century were expected to communicate their teachers' ideas faithfully. This was like a core part of their job description. They were amazing in their memories and in their uh, tracking. Uh, So verse 2, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Eyewitnesses in the first century were generally regarded as the most reliable sources. But the writer is saying that even though While he himself is not an eyewitness, he has access to eyewitnesses, and he has carefully interviewed them to capture their stories, stories that shed light on otherwise missing pieces of the story, and that before the time of eyewitnesses passed, before these people died, he wanted to record their statements and experiences so they could be captured for all to read. He embarks on this massive research project, and he's feeling the clock ticking. I think of journalists today who want to interview World War II vets before they die to make sure we have an accurate account of their lives on record. So who is this writer? Should we trust him? There's no signature in the book itself, but undisputed church tradition and lots of other clues in in both Luke acts (laughs) gives us a high degree of confidence that the writer of both books is Luke, hence the name, the title. I want to tell you a little bit about Luke because I have developed a bit of a preacher's crush on Luke. Okay, he is a boss. If you if you read the newsletter, you saw some of that. But here's why: uh, a few reasons why Luke's writing should make it at least to the top ten of your 2024 Book of the Year and be required reading for all of us. First, he's a skillful writer. If you read the book in its entirety, you're going to see he's a good storyteller. And in fact, the middle chunk, Luke 9 to 19, there are some stories that are not anywhere else in scripture. Um, there's a reason the publisher agreed to fund this project. A good writer makes a big difference. I'm not going to lie, I was reading some of my kids' um Required textbooks, and it was like the juvenile edition of other books I should have been reading. And I like to read what they're reading, so I did. And uh, when I finished it, I went to this other book, and I'm like, oh, like good writing again. Like, oh, good, okay. I needed that level. Uh, good writing makes a difference. Um, second, he is not Jewish, he is a Gentile. Talk about reading someone from a diverse perspective. He may be the only Gentile author in the New Testament and that unique background undoubtedly factors into his writing. Okay, next. He's an accurate historian. He's a careful investigative reporter. He gets really good sources, uh, Sources and interviews that would make even Oprah jealous, uh, including the inner life of Mary and what she's thinking in this whole process, Mary, uh, mother of Jesus. Um, And the first four verses of this book say a lot about this. He has knowledge of this matter firsthand, where he's limiting, he did his own research, and then he organized it in a way that's helpful contribution to the academy. Now, many of you are actually academics, uh, and any academic would respect Luke. Andy and I were at a gathering recently of city church people and at one point Andy realized I'm sitting in a room full of people with doctorates each in their respected fields and when you're in that kind of setting there's a sense of like um, these guys know their stuff they're they've done the work they know this topic and that is how we are to think about Luke he's also a professional He's a physician. I know we have several doctors here. He would fit right in in southwest Minneapolis. When Paul sends greetings to lots of other believers, he mentions Luke, the doctor, in Colossians 4. Our dear friend, I think it's on the next slide there, Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greeting. So when we read the stories of Jesus healing numerous people in this book, it's kind of fun to remember that the person um, who is telling this Um, was a doctor himself and I can imagine his respect for Jesus growing when he sees Jesus help a paralytic to walk and raise the dead. But he's not just goaded academically and professionally. He's a good friend of the apostle Paul. This guy has got both head smarts and heart when concluding his book philemon uh, his book to philemon and passing on greetings there paul includes luke's name in the list of fellow workers and it's also clear from 2 timothy 4:11 that at the end of his life when other people had deserted paul luke was a faithful friend he says only luke is with me now that says something about him and lastly luke is an evangelist He really wants people to know the good news of doubt Jesus, and he gave his life for that purpose. Numerous passages in volume two of his work, Acts, he writes in the narrative, we, you can see those there, and because of that, we know that he was with Paul for some portion of his second missionary journey, Um, and then he was in the area where Jesus lived, taught, ministered for two years with Paul while Paul was on house arrest before he was transferred to Rome. So it is most likely in those two years that he was in Judea, he had plenty of time to conduct his research and interview people for this project. Now, that's Luke. Now, as far as who the book is dedicated to, Theophilus, we don't know as much about him, except that he's likely the financial sponsor for this project. A writing project this big would have cost a lot, both in the initial researching and writing, and then also the copying of scrolls, publishing it, if you will, once it was completed. And it was standard practice to dedicate works, that, uh, writing works, to the patron who'd funded the project. They could also generously promote it. Uh, so that descriptive phrase most excellent Theophilus at a minimum tells us he is a person of wealth and financial status in the first century. This phrase is actually used to describe governors and people of high status. It's possible he was a Roman official, but we don't know for sure. What I find most interesting is that it is not entirely clear whether Theophilus is a new convert to Christianity, a brand new follower, therefore needs some instructions basics in the faith or whether he is merely exploring open curious about the person of Jesus and Luke wanted to write this to help him come to an understanding of who Jesus is the purpose outlined in verse four to know the certainty of the things you have been taught actually leaves open either option and I'm inclined to think the latter but either way he's right on the edge Luke wants this to help Theophilus to see how it's reasonable to come to the conclusion that Jesus is Savior and Lord. So if you're somewhere right on the edge, I invite you to read Luke's book. We have some copies of Bibles in the library. We'll be getting some copies of just the book of Luke uh, that we'll put out for you. We would love for you to take a copy and read it. Because the story about Jesus Luke is telling isn't just credible, It is also incredible. It is amazing. It is a remarkable story. The book is full of stories of the impossible. In addition to the book culminating in Jesus rising from the dead, here are just a few others. A virgin is found to be with child. And the angel says nothing is impossible for God. Sick people of various ailments find healing and freedom. A paralyzed man walks. A tax collector forgoes the nice salary and instead decides to follow Jesus. An unlikely group of people who would never be in the same room become Jesus' team of recruits. Fishermen are repurposed into fishing for people and more and more. All of this speaks to real life change all the people in these stories experience real life change and this change is not just possible it is not possible without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and so we're going to see throughout this series that Luke more than any other gospel writer emphasizes the role of the Holy Spirit in his work the Spirit appears throughout but again I'm just going to highlight a few as we set up this series Jesus birth Luke 1, 35. we just um, spent Luke 1 and 2 uh, the last few weeks in Advent, um, so you will remember the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High uh, coming upon Mary. The beginning of Jesus' ministry at baptism, Luke 3:21 to 22 Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Immediately after Jesus baptism, he's full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit into what? The wilderness. To be tempted, where he is faithful and obedient to the Father by resisting temptation. Then he emerges from that time ready to go, ready to launch his ministry, as we're going to look at next week, Luke 4. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then his first words in his first sermon on the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. All that Jesus does is spirit-prompted, spirit-led, spirit-empowered. His work is marked by, animated by, prompted and initiated by, completed by the work of the Spirit. That's what makes it so incredible. Now, I don't know a person or family today that isn't interested in life change. In freedom from addictive habits in healing from traumatic wounds from the past, in learning better ways of coping with stress and loneliness, in forging healthier relationships with family and friends. Is life change really possible? Luke the doctor would say it is, by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This past week when I was praying through the prayer request that came in, I noticed one that I thought was so appropriate for today's sermon. I actually asked permission of the person to share it anonymously with you now. And here's what it is. I believe it was for their entire family. That the Holy Spirit become the dominant influence in our lives in the coming year. Let me say that again. That the Holy Spirit, would become the dominant influence in our lives in the coming year. What a beautiful prayer. What a prayer I believe the living God will delight in answering. What if we made that our prayer as a church? Can you imagine what might happen if the Holy Spirit were the dominant influence in our lives? More than money, more than success, more than what others think of us, more than fear more than what our culture thinks he wants it to be that way let us ask him for that this is a credible book with an incredible message and this message is third and finally for all people not just some now to be clear All the gospel writers make it clear that Jesus' invitation to real life is open to all. Every one of them is consistent on that point. But Luke, perhaps more than any other writer, is obsessed with this point. When you read his work in comparison to the others, it stands out as a trait in his writing. And we'll see throughout this series, numerous times that happens. But again, here's just a preview of the kinds of people Luke is taking pains To make sure they know they get in on this message. In a culture that excluded them, thought less of them, Luke is saying, this is for you too. Sometimes in his writing, he shares stories other writers don't. And sometimes he shares the same story, but puts a little different twist on it. Here's some groups of people Luke is adamant about saying, yes, this means you too the poor and the oppressed, right from the beginning in Luke 1. Sinners and tax collectors, which gets highlighted very poignantly with a story of a prostitute and a Pharisee. And guess who is the winner there? Luke 7. Lepers and others of low social standing. A beautiful vignette um, in Luke 5, 12 to 16, when the leper says, are you willing And Jesus says, resolutely, full of compassion, I am willing, be clean. You matter too. Gentiles, he's gonna say more about that. Women, this is all over the narrative. The the women dominate the narrative. From Luke 1, the stories of the women, to them being the first witnesses at the end. No other gospel gives as much attention to women uh, who played a part of Jesus' ministry, including those who funded it in Luke 8, than Luke. Now, I realize it might be hard for us to understand this um, sense, this sense of radical inclusion that so moved Luke, the Gentile. Maybe this plaque will help. This plaque written in Greek was uh, found by a French archaeologist in 1871. It stood at the entrance of the Jerusalem temple. And I don't expect you to read your Greek. If you do, then maybe you're Well, probably you could, David, (laughs) maybe Andy. This is what it reads. No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary, and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. In the first century, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were forbidden to enter the temple of God upon pain of death. So do you see how radical it is that Jesus flings the gates open and says, come on in, this is for you. This is the world which Luke, a Gentile himself, is writing this masterful work. So usually people who are this smart and intelligent and accomplished, educated, successful, I imagine Luke with a Harvard medical degree at the top of a class, a Fulbright scholar, also writing a best-selling, critically acclaimed book, people like that, are frankly usually stuck up and snooty, judgy. Not Luke. Luke is the guy in the office when someone's name comes up and a co-worker starts bashing him, Luke stands up and says, I didn't think they were that bad. I think they work hard and they're a good team player. He's a softy. He's an easy grader. Maybe because he himself knows what it's like to be excluded. He makes great effort to make sure nobody feels on the outside and that they get in on this too. Who are our tax collectors, lepers, Gentiles today? Who are the people we generally regard as lower in social status? It might be people of a certain profession or people who choose to pause their profession to raise children. It might be people of a certain age where we think, they no longer have something to offer or what is wrong with this generation. It might be people of a different race or culture or religion. It might be people struggling with mental illness and addictions. And I think if Luke were here today, he'd look around the room and ask us who is not represented here and why not? Doesn't Jesus' message extend to them as well? But in order for us to share... Jesus gospel for all we have to be willing to warmly embrace people wherever they are and churches and religious folk are not always known for that kind of welcome my research assistant Andy reminded me recently of what a friend once said to a Christian journalist to Christian journalist and writer Philip Yancey the man was an alcoholic and listen to what he told Yancey When I'm late to church, people turn around and stare at me with frowns of disapproval. I get the clear message I'm not as responsible as they are. When I'm late to AA, the meeting comes to a halt and everyone jumps up to hug and welcome me. They realize that my lateness might be a sign I almost didn't make it. When I show up, it proves my desperate need for them won out over my desperate need for alcohol. Oh, friends, would that we might be a church where we jump up and welcome people to church whatever state they're in. Regardless of whether you consider yourself spiritually open or not, the truth of this message is for every one of us. Every one of us needs the life Jesus offers and life transformation is possible only by him through the Holy Spirit. If you're still unsure about that or if you're searching or hoping for something more in life, you're in the right place because this is a credible, incredible story and it is for all people. May this be a place where people are met wherever they are on their journey, open, curious, exploring, well on their way, whatever, with genuine respect and listening, where questions are taken seriously, And people can hear an orderly account or a reasonable explanation for why Jesus Christ really is the hope of the world. And where people can also see it is incredible that life change happens. It didn't just happen then. It happens now through the power of the Holy Spirit. And where this kind of credible, incredible message is available to not just some, but to all. So let it be. Let's pray. Oh, we're so grateful for um, the faithfulness, the effort, the hard work of this dear St. Luke to put his heart and his strength and his mind to carefully researching this story that is life-changing. And beyond that, we are so grateful to you, Lord Jesus, that you would come Yes, we behold the wondrous mystery that you would come to show us the best way to live, and that you would offer us life now and life everlasting. Would you now, by that same holy Spirit, translate this message to the <laughs> the, le- the way we need to hear it, each one of us, that we may leave here more assured? of how credible and incredible this is and that we would extend this to all. We pray in Jesus' name and always for his sake. Amen.